0: Welcome back to The Vatican Briefing, National Catholic Reporter's podcast covering Pope Francis' summit on the future of the Catholic Church. I'm Joshua McElwee, the reporter's news editor and former Vatican correspondent.
1: And hello, I'm Christopher White, the reporter's current Vatican correspondent.
0: We're about halfway through Pope Francis's four-week Synod of Bishops, a gathering of some 450 bishops, priests, and laypeople that is discussing big issues, such as the possibility of women serving in ordained Catholic ministry, married priests, and how the Church can better include LGBTQ Catholics. Each week during the Synod, we're offering the latest updates from the gathering and a featured interview with an expert who will guide us through the big events. Later in the show, we'll be joined by Bishop Shane McKinley, who has led the Diocese of Sandhurst, Australia, since 2019. One of four Australian prelates taking part in Synod, McKinley was recently elected as one of 13 members of the Commission that will help prepare the first draft of the Assembly's expected final document. It's an in-depth interview giving some details of what the discussions have been like behind the scenes in the Assembly, and teasing out a bit of where things might go in the next few weeks. But before we get to our interview, let's talk a bit about what has happened in the last week at the Synod. Although it's not been quite as busy as the Synod's first week, there is still a lot going on. We're recording this on Saturday, October 14th. Chris, yesterday on Friday, October 13th, you had a piece revealing some of the discussions in the Assembly about LGBTQ Catholics and and how the Church can better include them. Do you want to talk about that a bit?
1: Yeah, that's right. This past week... We really saw some of the tensions begin to emerge in the room, particularly on LGBTQ issues. And I think the, the way the conversation started off, and, and this is based on reports from members from three different continents and their experiences in the room, they really saw prelates from Eastern Europe, Africa, and Australia double down and sense sent a, bit, a bit of fearfulness over inclusion and expansion of LGBTQ ministries even sort of apprehension of of using the acronym, which is strange. Of course, Pope Francis has used it. Vatican documents have used it for at least five years now. And then later in the assembly, some participants gave firsthand testimonials. It got quite emotional. We were able to report that there was applause in the room. So we saw some of these attentions emerge, but that's not exactly a surprise. At the beginning of the week, uh, Cardinal Jean-Claude Hollerich of Luxembourg, who's one of the principal coordinators of the synod, said, look, this is going to be a period where the tensions emerge, but don't be afraid of them. It's okay as long as we treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I think that's what we're seeing. I think we're certainly going to see more of that as we head into this next week, where the theme is about women. And we're already hearing reports of, again, small group discussions heating up, some participants even walking off, perhaps, at various points. So I think that's where we're at in the middle of this.
0: Yeah, I thought you did a really fantastic job there, Chris. And people can read that, of course, at ncronline.org, the website of National Catholic Reporter. Obviously, there's an interesting dynamic here because there is still these rules in place about what synod members can talk about the discussions in the hall. The Pope has asked them to maintain confidentiality and to fast from the media. I think what listeners will appreciate is we're trying to use sensitivity in terms of describing what people are telling us about what has happened in the hall, also not revealing too much information to try and keep those conversations confidential, discreet, as the Pope has asked for, but also to give people a sense of the, you know, the the real discussions that are happening in the Synod Room. And I think that the sense of encounter, you know, that Pope Francis has called for this culture of encounter. It seems like there has been movement in the Synod Assembly. People have shifted opinions a bit based on what they're hearing in the room. And that description of the first time there being applause As I understand it, as I heard it myself, I think you heard it as well, Chris. The first time there being applause in the room, a kind of a a general basis, was for someone who spoke movingly about an experience of LGBTQ Catholics. It's quite an extraordinary thing.
1: It is. And I think beyond that particular issue, this whole theme of this past week was that of communion. The week began with Father Timothy Radcliffe, who led the retreat at the beginning of the Synod for Synod delegates outside of Rome, and then theologian Anna Rowlands of of Durham University, who really talked about communion. And she said, communion is the very power of this room. And so I think in the tensions, that communion is being tested, but also very felt.
0: Yeah, it was interesting. So the way the Synod is functioning, at the beginning of each section of the working document, we're able to see a kind of a public section of the Synod, and so that Monday, this Monday, this week, it was Dominican Father T- Timothy Radcliffe and theologian Anna Rollins. And then Friday of this week, we had another open session where Cardinal Hollerich spoke again, introducing the section on women, which was interesting to see.
1: Yeah, Car- Cardinal Hollerich, uh, what struck me is he knew his audience. He said, look, most of us in this room are men, and we really have to be mindful of our own partiality here. And he said, look, baptism does does not make anyone better than anyone else. Women are not inferior to men. Uh, And then he spoke especially to bishops, and he said, we live in an echo chamber. I'm paraphrasing his words and putting them in my own, but he said, we have to look beyond our own self-referential body. And so I think, you know, particularly as he discussed the issue of, among the issues, women deacons, these are going to be challenging conversations.
0: Yeah, and we should also mention that as this conversation was going on Friday with Cardinal There was also a group in Rome holding kind of a parallel synod gathering about a 20-minute walk away from the Vatican, where former Irish President Mary McAleese spoke, as well as Benedict and Sister Joan Chittister, who I think many of our listeners and readers will know. And they were focusing really on the question of women's involvement in the Church, calling for a discipleship of equals and for more kind of equality and more recognition of women's leadership, even beyond the 54 votes that women now have in the Synod of Bishops. Our colleague, Rena Guidos, uh, has written a report about that gathering, which you can find, again, on our website at ncronline.org.
1: Yeah, I think there's a synod happening in the room, lots happening outside of the room. We're trying to keep an eye on both,
0: and we'll keep doing that for the rest of the month. Well, I think since we have this extended interview with Bishop Shane McInley coming up, we'll go ahead and take a break here and come back with our interview. Thanks so much. Joining us today on The Vatican Briefing is Bishop Shane McKinley. Originally from Melbourne, McKinley was ordained a priest of the Diocese of Ballarat in 1991. He has taught at the Australian Catholic University Ballarat and the Catholic Theological College in Melbourne. In 2019, Pope Francis appointed McKinley as the 8th leader of the Diocese of Sandhurst, Australia. Since then, McKinley has been elected as vice president of the 5th Plenary Council of Australia. He also is the co-chair of the Methodist Roman Catholic International Commission, bringing to the Synod and to our podcast a strong background in both synodal experiences and ecumenism. Uh, Days ago, McKinley was elected by his fellow Synod members as one of 13 members of the Synod's Commission for the Synthesis Report, which will help prepare the first draft of the Assembly's expected final document. Bishop McKinley, thank you so much for joining us on the Vatican Briefing. Very happy to be here. We know that there are still some regulations in place about how Synod members can speak in public about the discussions in the Assembly Hall, but we've also been told in press briefings in recent days that some of the discussions have focused on how the church can better include LGBTQ Catholics. Is there anything you can tell us about what those discussions have been like or the, or the tenor of the atmosphere of the room?
2: Yeah, and I've kept an eye on what they're comfortable in talking about at the briefings. And I think they've pitched that well in terms of talking generally around the issues rather than talking specifically about what anybody's saying. Certainly there in that particular space on Wednesday, there was, as you'd anticipate, there was very clear reaffirmation of the importance of the church's doctrine and teachings, but there was also great insights into personal experience and personal encounter, and the journey of conversion that some members had undertaken, affirming just how critical that personal encounter, pastoral care, and genuine Christian response to individuals is. And certainly that was very, very warmly received by the Assembly.
1: We were struck on Monday during the opening session by Father Radcliffe's reflections and also Cardinal Holerich to sort of lean into the attentions in the room and not be afraid of them. Uh, Is there anything from that sort of exhortation that kind of comes to mind from the last week? How did you receive that, that that it's okay to lean into the tensions?
2: And I'd say I'd endorse that completely in terms of Cardinal Holerick has been outstanding and Father Timothy Radcliffe was an, an inspired choice, both for leading the retreat and for his contributions through this week. And I know a lot of people have been tuning into their reflections and finding them enormously valuable. There is a real sense, I think, as the week's going on, of being joined by the Church throughout the world in those sessions that are open and being accompanied by them. And both Cardinal Hollerick and Father Radcliffe have, have opened up, and the Pope also, in his opening speech and his homily at the opening Mass, were very clear about the importance of people speaking freely and the the facilitators in our groups clearly have come back to this a number of times, regularly come back to this. So it's part of the direction that they're being given is that we're not seeking unanimity or uniformity. What we're seeking at this point, particularly in this first assembly and in the methodology of conversations in the spirit is that there's space for everyone to be heard for everyone to be heard, both in terms of the people in the room, but also part of the regulations even say that each of us should be very mindful of the context that we come from and the conversations that we've been part of, the discernment that we've been part of leading up to this, and should speak informed by that. And that needs to be heard in our groups. And that the goal of the groups is not to resolve those tensions, but to name them, to make sure that everyone is heard in a respectful and open way. And certainly that's been my experience and what I've heard of in other groups, and that the range of views and insights is recorded and included in the group report. So what we're asked to vote on, and it is a formal vote at the end of each module in our groups, is not whether we agree with everything that's said in the report, but whether the report is an accurate presentation of the discussion of the group. And I haven't looked at all of the reports, but I haven't seen one report yet where it hasn't been approved unanimously. And certainly there's no accounts of groups not being able to both have that open discussion and sometimes, sometimes quite difficult discussion. And we've got the space, we have the time, we have extended time in our groups on each topic. And we're hearing a range of views in the larger, the contributions to the larger assembly also, which then inform our final discussion in our groups. There's no sense of that discussion being constrained. And in fact, we're being encouraged to record that in our reports and also to contribute our individual presentations, both to our table or for those who've presented or who would like to have presented to the whole assembly, to contribute those. And I know that they're being received and, and considered by the theologians who have the unenviable task, really, of trying to draft a document, which they tell me they're using very much the method that they had adopted in Frascati in preparing the document for the continental stage. That wonderful document that I think shocked everybody because people recognized their voices. They said, our voices are here, all the range of voices. And so I'm confident that's the sort of document that we're likely to have offered to us arising from this assembly will be one that does pick up all of those voices and all of those tensions. And by doing that, then give space and direction for the church's reflection throughout the world over the next 12 months.
0: That's a very helpful understanding there of how the reports work for people to know how things are bubbling up. We mentioned at the beginning of the interview here that you were elected to the commission for the synthesis report. I'm curious if you can describe what that group is going to be doing, what's the focus of its work so people can better understand the purpose of that commission. I'd love to be able to give you that description, Josh.
2: At this stage, I know what's in the regulations. We meet for the first time tomorrow. We've got a preliminary meeting tomorrow. And then we have longer meetings scheduled, especially in the last week. So just looking at the calendar and what's scheduled to be in the program for the Assembly and when we're meeting as a commission, it looks like we're being asked to consider the draft report before it goes to the Assembly and then also to consider and have a role in reviewing the proposed amendments that come from the small groups before they come back to the assembly, before the final text comes to the
0: assembly. And aside here for our listeners, we're recording this on Friday, October 13th, so tomorrow will be Saturday, October 14th.
1: Broadening out away from the Senate a bit, could you talk a bit with us about your experience at the Australian Plenary Council and how you compare that experience to the experience at the Senate here, and, and how particularly does the Australian effort fit into Pope Francis's larger model of a synodal church?
2: He hasn't mentioned to me how it does, but clearly the Senate Secretariat has been very interested and has had extensive contact with us in Australia in reflecting on our experience at the Plenary Council and has drawn directly on a range of the people who were involved in that. There's, as you'd be aware, quite a, a range of Australians who are present here in various roles as experts and, and also Some of the members that Pope Francis invited personally. So it certainly was a synodal experience. We called it a plenary council, but a number of people in hindsight were saying, well, we didn't actually do very much legislating. We framed it as decrees because that's what plenary councils produce. They produce decrees. So we produce decrees. But the process and the documents, much more the sort of thing that you would anticipate from a synod. With hindsight, we may have been better to choose to have a synod and then perhaps have a plenary council sometime after that if there were things that particularly needed legislation. Much of the approach here is very familiar for those of us who are part of the plenary council, the methodology of conversations in the spirit, the broad consultation with the people of God leading to the formation of the agenda, the shaping of the agenda, and also the thing of having two assemblies with time in between, for further reflection and feedback, that that returning uh, returning to to rely on the census fide, really, of the people of God for input into that. We're not really at this stage, at the stage that we got to in the second assembly of the Plenary Council, where we were needing to come to decisions. That's not really where this assembly is at. That might be more the sort of methodology that needs to be included next year and might inform things like what's the process leading up to voting and that sort of thing. Where our process shifted considerably in the course of our our second assembly and shifted very positively, we learned a lot as we were going. We're here in the Synod, in this assembly, we're much more where we were in that first assembly of the Plenary Council, where there's initial reflection and seeking to respond into the agenda as it's arisen out of the consultation with the people of God. I'd say here we've got an enormous asset of, uh, what, 30 or 40 theologians who are here, some of the world's best theologians, who are here full-time gathering and reflecting on the enormous volume of reports and contributions that are being produced, and on our behalf, synthesizing that into something that we'll have in our first assembly, we only had five days and we were online. We're still in COVID. It worked remarkably well for something under those constraints. But really, our, our synthesizing what sort of insights had arisen out of those conversations in the spirit in that first week, that had to happen after the assembly. So for us, that went on for several months after that. And was a cause of some frustration for everybody because we weren't really in a position to be publishing anything until we had finished that process. Here, we've got the great benefit of having people working on that full-time now in parallel with our moving on to the subsequent topics so that by the, t- by the end of the four weeks here, everyone will be exhausted, but we will also have a very solid, I'm confident we'll have a very solid document that, that is ready for the next stage of discernment. So much of the methodology, much of the approach is very familiar to us and is bearing the same sort of fruit. It's clearly something that is not so familiar for very many of the people who are participating in this. Even just the look of the room is deeply familiar. I had never been to a synod, but I look at photos of what synods had been and compare them with the wonderful and very inviting scene that greets you when you come into the pool, the sixth hall, and that's very familiar. And it is very inviting. There's a space and there's space to speak, space to be heard, space to engage it. It invites conversation and it says very clearly that everyone is there on the same level. So each of the tables is carefully put together with a range of backgrounds. That's true, I think, in all the language groups, probably most of all in the English groups which is maybe 40% of the tables might be English speaking. But we've got people, each of the tables I've been on so far, we've got people from every continent. Really, the only ones we're missing are people from France, Italy, Spain, those those other language groups are, and Latin America. But every other continent and part of the world is there. And that that makes for a great richness. And it's carefully constructed too, so that there are Cardinals, bishops, priests, laymen, laywomen, religious, all sitting together around the table. There's no opportunity to jostle for position. We're each allocated a seat, and it's working incredibly well. And when anyone speaks, there's a camera right there uh, and a microphone right in front of each person. The same for us as for the Pope himself.
0: If I can maybe ask one more question about the Plenary Council... I have to admit, I didn't cover it very closely, but I was reading some of the reporting that we were uh, running at ncronline.org, and I know from what I was reading that there, there seemed like there were some tensions between some of the bishops and some of the lay delegates. I'm wondering if you can describe how that came to be resolved, and if there might be any lessons you took from that experience in terms of the synodal working together that you bring here to you, with you to Rome. That could be a whole other podcast, Josh,
2: <laughs> but in brief... Yes, there were certainly tensions and that's widely known. There's no, no, and we didn't make any secret about that. I don't think it's accurate to describe it as a tension between bishops and other members, though, where we encountered those tensions in a way that, um, interrupted our uh, proceedings was in the vote on the document around witnessing to the equal dignity of women and men which was very contentious. We had a consultative vote of the non-bishops and then a deliberative vote of the bishops. And one of the things with having a plenary council and legislative power and so on. But in the consultative vote, one of the motions only just reached the two-thirds that were needed and the other motion failed to reach the two-thirds that was needed. In the deliberative vote, neither of them reached the two-thirds that was needed. Uh, and it was very clear that there was... Significant divergence of views and tensions, and people discontented with the document, both between bishops, between clergy, between men, between women. People were coming from widely diverging views, which were not simply aligned to being women, men, lame, lay people, bishops, etc. We suspended the proceedings and spent the rest of that day unpacking that. And the two things probably that I take away most from that as I've reflected on it, it ended up with a, a very good document, both on the, the place of women and I think better process and better documents, stronger documents, stronger outcomes on the remaining four topics as well. And people generally would say that that, that doesn't take away the, the pain and The wounds that people experienced in that, and the distress and the hurt, people still carry that, I know, and fair enough. So it's not a case that they all lived happily ever after and it's therefore okay. But it was certainly a good and a strong outcome. The quality of the conversation shifted. The methodology, the core methodology of conversations in the spirit didn't shift, but the quality of both the speaking and the listening changed, People from every side, were very distressed, viscerally distressed. Both people disappointed that the motions hadn't got up, but also people who felt that their concerns about what was being proposed had not been really heard. And the first thing that we did after we suspended the, uh, the proceedings was to go back into a conversation in the spirit to talk about both how people were experiencing the failed vote, but also then to move on to what their concerns were about the document and about the general issues. I don't think that people said much different by way of content in the conversations that happened after that. But they spoke from where they were, which was really distressed at the outcome, but also at the possibility that we might end up having nothing to say about women as a plenary council. It was an appalling prospect, and not one that anyone wanted to contemplate. And everyone was determined to do what needed to be done to allow us to move forward. So people spoke, and everyone, it wasn't that people, anyone was dismissing this as not important. It was, It really mattered to everyone, and they spoke about how it mattered, and listened in a different way also. You know, that courageous speaking and humble listening. Courageous speaking, not just in saying something that the other person might not like, but courageous speaking in a way that put themselves on the line, that made themselves very vulnerable, and that was open to hearing people's, that sort of generous, courageous speaking, in a way that, that shifted people's views and understanding and appreciation where in an issue like The Place of Women and in so many other issues, this is not the first time people have talked about them. They've had conversations. They know what they think. They know the answers to various arguments. They know what their responses are. And while people spoke freely and respectfully before the votes, they, I think, were largely speaking in a way they had spoken previously, often many times before, and speaking perhaps more intellectually Certainly our conversation after the failed votes was not, first of all, intellectual. It was much more personal, both in the speaking and in the hearing. The second thing I'd say that I learned was that discernment takes time. And we had a schedule and we were ready for a vote. And that's what the schedule said. And so that's what we did. We shouldn't have, looking back on it, because we weren't ready for a vote. We hadn't got to the point where there was clear consensus. Even if we had managed to get the two thirds that was needed, it wouldn't have been a good outcome. We needed that extra time and that extra process and that different quality of process in order to get to a point where there was consensus. So, part of how our methodology shifted was that we operated much more by the seat of our pants and testing the temperature of the room. We had cards that we had been using just for procedural votes. Are you happy with the timetable? Are you approved the minutes of the day before? That sort of thing. Well, we ended up using them an awful lot. They they had a really good workout. (laughs) Where are the sore points? What do we need to talk about more? Any vote that we had after that, we knew already the outcome of the vote before we took it. And there was a real sense that the vote was just a formalizing of a decision that was already clear in the room. And that was quite a different sort of decision-taking, different relationship between decision-making and decision-taking. And for each of the votes, yeah, we took the time that it took. And for some of them, it didn't take long, but for some of them, it did. And the outcome, in fact, on this document and on others, it was a better document, it was a tighter document, but it certainly wasn't a watered-down document.
1: You talk about the need for the the Plenary Council to, to have something important to say on the role of women. And I'm curious from your experience in these past two weeks here in Rome, how have you personally seen and felt the presence of lay people, and especially women, contributing to to this assembly taking place uh, in these weeks?
2: In one sense, it's totally unremarkable, because it's just what you would expect, what I'd be used to. We have a, a range of women in our midst. They're participating fully. They're speaking openly. They're making very... Substantive contributions, both as members and as experts, and we're gaining enormously from that now in in the context of other Senate approaches, I know that's not that hasn't been the experience, but clearly there are very a very clear and very valuable presence here.
0: We know you have other meetings to get to and we don't want to take up too much of your time, but I also want to ask digging into that question. We know that the discussions at the Senate over the next week We'll focus on the working document section that deals with women's ministry in the church or even the possibility that women could serve in new roles or, the, or, as, or as ordained deacons, as the document specifically uh, highlights. Do you have any particular hopes for the discussions in this regard in the coming week?
2: I think we can certainly anticipate that we're going to hear clear discussion of all the range of options there. That was certainly part of our discussion at the Plenary Council in Australia. It's obviously been thinking particularly of women, for there are five areas in this module that will be operating concurrently. So as well as women, there's broader ministry, ministry of all the baptised, the mission of all the baptised. There's a focus on priests. There's a focus on the ministry of bishops. So there's a whole range of issues on oh, the Petrine ministry itself. In the space of women, the reason that the question, say, of women's ordination to the diaconate is being asked in the institutum Laboris Is because it's because there was such a wide representation asking that question in the consultation. I'm glad it's here. I'm glad it's going to be discussed. I think it needs to be discussed at the universal level. It's certainly one of those things. Not everything that we took. We are one of the things that the assembly has been asked to do is to identify which things we might be able to, which areas we might be better to move on appropriately at local levels rather than universally the question of the ordination of women is clearly something that needs to be addressed universally and that was the request of the plenary council in Australia so I'm glad that it is being addressed at that level and if it were to be that the outcome was for ordination to the diaconate to be open to women I'd certainly welcome that.
1: We've really appreciated you drawing on both your experience from Australia to here. We're grateful that you have brought us along this journey with you so i I think this seems like a good place to to wrap up for now thank you so much for joining us on the the vatican briefing and, and good luck as you continue your synodal journey this week
2: good thanks chris thanks josh
0: Welcome back to the Vatican briefing. We just had Bishop Shane McKinley with us for a few minutes. I was really struck, Chris, by his depth of expertise in this Australian Plenary Council experience and the lessons he's bringing forward here in Rome. I wonder if that might be one of the reasons why he was elected to this commission to help draft the the first draft of the final document, bringing those lessons of the difficulty of finding consensus in the room between bishops and lay members and women and men, and then working together to get to a better solution and taking the time necessary, I found it a really, really interesting reflection. I
1: think that's right. I mean, you could hear as he was talking through both what happened in Australia and here in Rome, that he's a man of process, but he also knows when the process needs to be interrupted to allow for, in this case, the discernment to actually happen. And on that front, as they enter into a discussion on the role of women in the coming days, it seemed quite clear from his response that this is an area where he's eager to see the conversation move forward and very open to the questions that they're considering. And so I think that's going to be something you know to, to pay attention to both next week, but also as we head into the final stages of this toward a final document.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. And thank you again to Bishop McKinley for joining us. We're so grateful for his time and his insights. Speaking of the week ahead, I might just mention here that as we're recording this on Friday, October 13th, Most of next week, the Synod members will continue their discussions on the section of the working document that focuses on co-responsibility in the Church. This is the the very section of the document that uh, talks about expanding women's involvement in the leadership of the Church, and one of those questions is specifically about whether it would be, quote, possible to envisage, end quote, women serving as Catholic deacons. The Synod will continue those discussions for most of next next week, but then on, on Friday, October 20th, Synod members will move on to the next section of the working document, which focuses on governance and authority in the Catholic Church. That section asks even more big questions, including how lay people can be better involved in the Church's governing structures. For example, it asks how the bishops could consider, quote, concrete structural forms, end quote, so that lay people's participation is not only a, quote, paper exercise. These are
1: pretty direct questions, and I was struck also by what Bishop McKinley said about how some of the job of the small groups and then later the synthesis committee is to figure out what needs to be addressed by the the universal church and what can be handled on a a more local level. And certainly as they move forward to the end of this synod and working toward a final document, it'll be interesting to see how they deal with what goes into what bucket.
0: Yeah, I think we have a very exciting week ahead of us. And I hope everyone will stay tuned at ncronline.org to see Chris and my reports and to see reports from others at National Catholic Reporter. This seems like a good place to wrap up for this week. Thank you again for joining us on the Vatican Briefing. We really appreciated having you with us today. If you're enjoying the show, please plan to join us next week for another special interview and all the updates on the discussions at Pope Francis's Synod of Bishops. You can find our show notes with relevant links to today's discussion at ncronline.org. And please, again, if you are so inclined, leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It really helps, and we really appreciate your time and your review. Until next week! You've been briefed.
1: Vatican Briefing is a production of National Catholic Reporter. John Grosso is the executive producer. Joshua McElwee and Christopher White are your producers and hosts. The editing was done by David Dalt of Sandberg Media and music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Check out more great reporting from the National Catholic Reporter at
0: ncronline.org.